So tonight, <clears throat> I realize there's a quite a few, a number of questions I've actually answered, and I could sort of leave the retreat without really um, answering them if I don't answer it tonight, because tomorrow I would like to give you a talk, a pep talk. <laughs> <laughs> so something to... <laughs> I feel I have to, you see. <laughs> but maybe it might not be a pep talk. <laughs> so I'm just going to go through the question and see what happened afterwards. Somebody called Dear Ajahn Sunura, in bracket, also known as Ajahn Fearless, so I don't know who that is. <laughs> don't know where they heard this. So this is interesting for me. When I read this, I, I, I read a mind, you understand? Not just a note, I read a mind. Now listen to this. There's no sign, except a very nice kind of calligraphy type. Sometimes my meditation is interrupted by a physical tension and anxiety in my stomach. As this perhaps, also, is this perhaps Bhavatanha? Full stop. Vibhavatanha or both? And which hindrance is most active? Doubt, ill will, in bracket, towards myself, or restlessness and worry, or all the above? You can see, this is pretty constructing that, you know, proliferation. Does it really matter? <laughs> <laughs> Should I just carry on beginning again and not worry about it? Yes. <laughs> when it's finished. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? What we do with our mind. This is supposed to be a question-answer sort of pot. <laughs> Not telling me what... You... It's a good question, but I think you've sorted it out, so why, why should I... Yeah, just carry on. Don't worry about the words, you know, just... Ajahn, is there time before the end of the retreat I could be... Could be could do a guided meditation, yeah. Not tonight, but <laughs> tomorrow, yeah. Tomorrow or, or Sunday before you go. Now, could you please talk about Buddhism within an intimate physical relationship, marriage and partnership, please? Thank you. That's interesting, isn't it? I was married about thirty-five years ago. 37 years ago, so, but I can speak a little bit, intimate, yeah. Well, I don't know what to say. I mean, I could say, I could proliferate with you, I could proliferate. <clears throat> I mean, could you give me a bit of a, an idea of what you, you want me to talk about, whoever wrote this? You know, an intimate relationship, okay, physical relationship, marriage, partnership, please. Okay, we'll leave that for the time being. 
Is Buddhism interesting? Is Buddhism religion? If not, is it just a way of teaching the Dharma? And therefore, are there many ways of realizing the Dharma? Well, for me, Buddhism is really the word of the Buddha. You know, it's like the word of this enlightened being called the Buddha. You know, one can see that the Dharma is a is a word that means truth. You know. So I think in India they use the word dharma also, you know, yeah, dharma as a way of expressing truth, not nature. And well, the, you know, Buddhism is can be anything really. It can be a real, you know, you can label it as a religion. You can label it as psychology, sort of system. You can label it as a free spirited new age kind of uh, movement <laughs> you can express it as um, uh, just a way of life you know so Buddhism to me is simply what I knew of the teaching of the Buddha before I got to know the teaching of the Buddha I didn't call my insight or anything Buddhism I just didn't know what to call them really which was probably as well but the Buddha, I mean, I remember Chinsamidu saying that, you know, talking about the same topic, and, you know, he went back to the Latin, you know, like religion, religere, you know, sort of connecting again, real, sort of bring back, you know, the, um, you know, to, to bring, sort of connect again the truth to oneself, you know the teaching that connects us back to the truth within. But really, you know, of course there are many ways of realizing the Dharma. I mean, many people have insight without a religion particularly. And, you know, what does it mean to realize the Dharma? You know, we use words that are really loaded with a lot of meaning, but sometimes we don't need all these uh, various kind of layers of meaning to realize the Dhamma, you know. What you've been doing for the last nearly 10 days is realizing the Dhamma that um, has been manifest in your mind or realizing the fact that you're attached to some views or some opinions or some, you know, some thoughts or some... Um, you know, ways of looking at things, ways of feeling things. Maybe you'll be, be attached to peace, maybe attached to um, to pleasure, you may be attached to comfort and so on, you know. So realizing the Dhamma is actually, from the, let's say, the Buddhist point of view, you could just keep it down to realizing anicca dukkanata, realizing the vulnerable truth, realizing the, the cause and effect, we call karma, cause and effect, you know. The, the, how these truths manifest in ourselves, you know, the fact that we can learn from just uh, seeing when this arises, this arises, and this sees, you know. When that arises, that sees. We can just notice that. Or when I, when I act in a certain way, I can see the result of that way of acting. When I speak in a certain way, I can be aware. Most people are not really aware. 
you know, how they affect themselves and they have, how they affect others, for example. It's interesting. A lot of the Buddhist teaching is about realizing how we treat this mind and body, how we look at them, how we um, relate to them, and in kind of by continuity, how we relate to others and life and so on. All the precepts, everything that uh, we are given as a path of practice, sila samadipanya, it's all about relationship to life. That is um, a relationship that um, help one's life to blossom and to um, grow in goodness, you know, to grow in that which is skillful and beneficial and wise. Right? A lot of our conditioning in the mind is um, is is not helping us to realize this. You know, a lot of our conditioning, you know, when the <clears throat> the mind is riddled with fear, riddled with anxiety, riddled with doubts and worry and so on, uh, unless you bring the Dharma in that moment is actually being able to see it. You see it as Dharma, you see it as an object. Dharma actually sometimes means thing, a thing. A Dharma is a thing. You know, so you can see your your mental state, your feelings, and everything as an object you can observe. A lot of the time, our meditation has simply to watch the mind being attached to something. You know, we don't see it yet as an object that actually there that we can look at, and we look and look at the way it manifests, at the way it acts, as a way. It affects us. We can have a, a deeper and broader and wider vision at some point of all all that we experience. And it takes time. Sometimes it's not like happening overnight. You know, sometimes it can take a long time. Just for me, for example, just a feeling of anger. You know, um, you know, you you for a long long time we never think we are angry. We interpret it as I'm right. You notice that. You're not angry, you're just right. So it's difficult to see anger because you believe you're right. And of course, it must be somebody wrong if you're right. Can't be right without someone that's, you know, something that's wrong. So there's a lot of our mind is hidden behind this kind of lack of realization. Uh, when a realization means like you see something as it is, you know. And sometimes our body, this mind body here, it's so um, habitual, you know, it's so we, we just so used to the way it functions, to the way it feels, to the way it uh, uh, speaks, to the way it thinks, to the way it perceives things that we need to look quite deeply for a long time before we can see a little bit of, have a little bit of space between what you perceive, think and feel and, you know, and so on, to feel the sense of spaciousness between that which you, kind of this mass of stuff that you feel or you know, and actually things as they are, you know. We still interpret ourselves in a certain way. So if I have pain, if I have discomfort, you know, the the brain suddenly uh, immediately will label it as oh there must be something wrong with me. 
you know, and all the doctors will tell you this. Must be, maybe if you have pain, there must be something wrong with you. Well, actually, in in truth, you know, there may be something wrong. I'm not saying there's not something wrong, but with the Buddha Dhamma teaching, you really begin to um, actually uh, question: Is there is this pain really uh, something wrong with me, or is just a body? Do it doing its thing because you know the energy in the body sometimes gets blocked, sometimes gets sort of uh, stuck, you know, and that create pain. That create pain. It's amazing that this uh, complexity of our system here. You know, one little thought, one little thought, it can affect our body straight away. I, maybe I've shared that with you when Deepak Chopra made an, an experiment about with many things, but one of them was um, he he experimented with the thought, "I am thirsty," and he was a scientist. He was an um, endocrinologist by training, and uh, he just explored that and noticed that in the brain, as soon as you said, "I'm thirsty," the actual cells of the body started retaining water. That really impressed me, I remember. Gosh, my mind is really powerful, you know. And then in terms of perception, just to show how powerful perceptions are, he did another amazing experiment, which is very simple, but the results are just amazing. I mean, I shouldn't say it to you, I should leave you a little bit of a surprise. So he experimented with three different things. One was flies, Simple. I mean, you didn't need a huge kind of a laboratory to do this. Just a fly and, a, and an empty pot of honey. Okay, put all the fly in the pot with, and then kind of put the lid on and put some holes so they could breathe and not die. And then he said, after, you know, a little t- bit of time, maybe a few days, I don't know, I'll probably feed, feed them with something. After a few days, he opened the pot and he said, only the bravest went out. They never saw that the lid had been kind of uh, taken out. Now that's the first experiment. It gets more interesting. Second experiment, he had an aquarium with a partition in the middle, which was, uh, I think, transparent, you know. Or it had a, I don't know if it was colored or not, but it was a partition in the middle. Okay, On one side you had a little red and yellow Fish, you know those little fish that you see in aquariums, you know. In and then on the other side, you had the green and the blue ones. I remember this. Lots of colors, amazing fish. They look like Picassos, and you know, and there's a great artist, you know, Matisse, and so on. I'm trying to find another one, I forgot his name, but anyway, you know the one. And then after about a few days, he took the partition out. And you'll believe the fish never went beyond where the partition was. Do you understand? They couldn't see that there was something that was being taken out and they could go kind of move from both sides. Just to show you, God knows what we are not seeing right now. I thought to myself, my God, you know, I wonder how many things are right in front of me and I don't see them, you know. (laughs) And then the last experiment was about cats. So 
He had two rooms, one room with only vertical lines and another room with only horizontal lines. Well, when he put the little kitten, cats and kittens, or moved them from one room to the other, they kept bumping in the lines they were not used to. And I don't know what he did, little maybe strings or something. They couldn't see the, 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 the one on the, who had been left in the horizontal line room, could not see the vertical one and vice versa. And I think he made this experiment just to see the power of perception. If the cats do that, we'll probably do the same. You notice that. Our assumption is all based on that. You know, we assume something because we just believe something is, a, is real when it wasn't. It isn't. And we call it assumption. We have a word for it. I see something and I assume it's green. Well, actually, it's been painted since I saw it last and it's blue. You still paint, you know, talking about the same old paint that was green, even though if it's in front of you, you might not even see it because it's still in your memory, it's still green. So this is the power of the mind. It's quite extraordinary, you know. And I've gone off a little, you know, not gone off, but the kitsch question is, that, you know, I don't like this. I mean, I can't. <laughs> I think those questions are ridiculous. What I mean by this, what I mean by this, um, it's not that the questions are ridiculous, but so many of the questions, like, is Buddhism original? If not, this is just a way of teaching the Dharma. I mean, haven't you understand what is the Dharma by now? Ten days. <laughs> How many times did I pronounce the word Dhamma, you know? Why do you ask questions like that? It's not a way of teaching Dhamma. Dhamma is just... The truth, you know, that you've been realizing for the, the past eight days. And therefore, so, you know, continue, and therefore, if that, you know, he's already responded to the question, you know, this is what I mean, it's a irritating question. And therefore, you know, we haven't even answered the question, but, and therefore, if that is like that, are there many ways of realizing Dhamma? Yeah, you can do cartwheel and realize the Dhamma. You know, you can do anything. Uh, realizing the Dhamma has nothing to do with the shape of form or place or, you know, realizing the Dhamma, you can, you know, with Dhamma means truth, you know, or means the way things are. It can happen any time at the most unexpected moment. You know, people have shared with me all their enlightenment experience or their breakthrough experience or their, you know, it wasn't necessarily at Amaravati on their cushion in uh, the shrine room, you know. I suddenly realized the Dhamma was I was doing the washing up once. And another time. Anyway, the washing up part was quite important. I remember well because it was very Zen, you know, like I didn't plan to be Zen, but it kind of marked me, you know, it's like I could have been doing something really special and sort of, but like just washing up, you know, just kind of ordinary sink and washing up liquid and thing, and suddenly you have a, a realization of the time stopping. Could imagine it happening, you know, on a beautiful kind of sunset or something, <laughs> by the ocean, with your good friends around, and you know, no, just washing up in my kitchen. So it's not a way of teaching 
Buddhism is not a way of teaching, it's a path, you know, not a way of teaching, it's a path. Buddha talks uh, to us, teaches us the Noble Eightfold Path, that's a path that is there for us to guide our life, to continue to develop the mind, the vision, our vision of our of the mind in such a way that we come to see the truth of this mentality, physicality. You know. It's Will. I'm sorry, Will, where is he? Where is Will? Oh, I didn't mean to offend you. No, no, no. I mean, it's kind of, I'm making half a joke. Do you understand that? You know, it's like... <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. It's kind of... Teaseful, but you know it's not. But it's you can see how what we create in our mind, you know, a lot of complication. It's complex, isn't it? Much more complex than you know that it is in reality. You know, go back to the intimate relationship. <laughs> we'll come to that in a minute. I need to warm up a bit. <laughs> Every meal I find myself taking too much food, how to stop that? <laughs> I spent about 15 years doing that. <laughs> so I'm a kind of expert on the matter. <laughs> Don't worry, at some point you get really tired. <laughs> to see your mind doing the same old thing. It's a big, it's a question. I mean, all of us here can think, say the same thing. Who cannot say the same thing as this? Tell me. How many of you feel you're taking just the right portion <laughs> and you feel just right and you feel so happy? Mara is on the attack. I mean, that's like one of the best, best moments to attack you. Not just for the meal, but for the four hours following it and the four hours before the meal and the four hours after the meal. And always, you know, promising that one day it will be okay. It's amazing. I gave, I think I gave some really interesting reflection on that because I lived through this every day, totally consciously. Do you understand? So I was watching my mind with an incredible mind. Minutia, minutia, you know, really the details, because I wanted to understand still rationally in a way that one day you won't do that. If I keep an eye on it, really close eye, if I watch it, you know, it's like, and then at some point, another potatoes went. <laughs> Just like that, you know, it's like, oh no. And then guilt and remorse for the rest to us, you know. The, so, <clears throat> this is what happened. I think it's good to know that we're human, you know. Yeah. And this is what happened to human beings, you know. They never have enough. We never have enough. Once it's good, we never have enough. So, <clears throat> either you come to the point where you relax and uh, you let your mind sort of relax and at ease, and the wisdom actually increases a little bit more than when you are so determined to control it to the point where you're going to get exactly what you want. And at some point, there's a kind of little demons, you know, that just blind your eyes for a second and you are 
back onto a third piece of chocolate, you know. <laughs> it's amazing. You get blinded by Mara, you know. And so, the, the re the, I mean, I, so I should describe you, hopefully, it might be funny for you. So, for me, it was like I was really, really determined to work through this, for one thing, because I suffered so much to take so too much food, you know. And I, I told Ajahn Sumedho once, and I think maybe I told you the story. He said, did you ever thought you were hungry? Not just greedy, but hungry, right? I mean, for you, you are used to have a big breakfast and maybe a meal, and a meal later on, because psychologically, hunger is really psychological. If you didn't think about it, sometimes I had to go to hospital, I didn't have to eat because of some some kind of test they were going to do. I was absolutely fine. I survived very well. No problem. I hardly ate through the day. I did fast, you know, 10 days fast here and there. Every year we did 10 days fast for several years, you know. Survive very well. It's good to do fast sometimes for those who can physically because then you can really, the the, the conscious, the, the mind itself is reassured that he can do it, you know. So your competitor, competitive mentality, that comes down. You say, so yeah, I can do it now, okay. Next, you know. So I remember kind of um, seeing the way the mind functions. It's quite amazing, you know. So you come to the meal and you say, I'm just going to take little, little. <laughs> you can say little, just a little bit, you know. And then, you know, and then by the time you come for the meal, you're really hungry, do you understand? Really hungry. And then you start, basically, you forgot about little and you start kind of, piling up things, some of them looks nicer than others, and you pile them up, pile them up. And because you're still, I'm still young and healthy and hungry, then of course you eat everything, you know, because you're really hungry at that age, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> when you're young and strong, you know, you, you're still very hungry. And then the whole afternoon I will be kind of... Uh, deliberating with my mind about what to do for to, the following day. <laughs> I have to stop that. I have to, the whole afternoon will be debates and kind of court case and, you know, a sort of negotiation and all, all the rest of it in all afternoon. Mm. Of course, by the time I reach, we didn't have like cheese and chocolate as we have now, you know, or we didn't have anything really at all. So, by the time your stomach is empty and you have nothing to eat, actually things calm down quite a lot. There's no choice. You can't go to the cupboard like you do now in the Lotus House, in Metatom Farside and so on. Got big cupboards with drinks, all kinds of drinks and all kinds of this and that. So that's more tempting. You see, we didn't have nothing to tempt us. So things calm down. And then, you know, because I was quite mental, I mean, not mental, it's so crazy, it's like, just like really working out mentally, how can you do that, you know? And by the time came nine thirty, ten, when I was going to go to bed, I was—I mean, I can't even know what it was like. What it was like because for me, it's not like it that anymore. But as a time, I had complete belief. You know, you know, I wasn't looking at my mind. Complete belief that I would be really totally enlightened to how much I needed to eat for the next day. There will be no problem. I knew exactly. I've seen all the trouble I went through that on that day. I saw the beginning, the middle, and the end. 
I saw the letting go and, you know, attachment. I saw all of it. I went through all the thing and I knew exactly the next day I will never do that again. <laughs> Can you relate to this? <laughs> never again. By 10 o'clock, it was finished. I was done and I wouldn't have any problem. Comes the next day and you can guess. Wisdom just went out of the window instantly. No, it's not fun, you know. As you know, it's not fun. Maybe for the men, I don't know what you eat, but some of you don't seem to kind of put on weight that much, you know. But for some of us, you know, it's like you just eat a little bit and it has more the kind of long-term effects. <laughs> so... You know, you have to really, in a way, give up at some level. You just have to give up altogether. By the not give up the badama, but give up being right. <laughs> you may, you want to make your mind right, don't you? You want to make your right really enlightened and right and good. You want to make your mind enlightened. But it doesn't get enlightened. The mind doesn't get enlightened. You get enlightened about the mind. <laughs> But the mind itself has a hard time, you know, not being greedy and not being uh, dissatisfied and not being, uh, you know, looking for something else than you have now, you know, and thinking about other things when you, you should be thinking about doing your job. You keep being distracted by so many things and so on. So the mind itself is totally unsatisfactory. The personality mind is quite unsatisfactory. I came to the point myself, it's very clear, it's much clearer now, it's no problem. It's like, unless I say, no, don't, it doesn't work. You know, you have to say, really, yet, in Russian, sometimes it works better. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe because it doesn't have any memory, you see, but it has a sort of sense of heaviness, you know. No, nothing, nothing. So the mind is a funny thing. It's about time you make friend with it. You know, being friendly with the mind is really important because the mind is like a, you know, most of our personality is pretty blind, as you know, isn't it? It wouldn't make us suffer so much if it wasn't blind. So I'm afraid now... Um, you know, for a long, long time, I mean, I know myself I was quite vain in a way. For a long, long time, I stopped eating because I wanted to be thin and look good. Do you know what I mean? Even as a nun, you want to be thin and look good, you know. <laughs> you don't want to look like a fat old lady, you know. <laughs> the vanity of self continues. Don't worry, it doesn't stop overnight. The vanity of me carries on for a long, long time. Even in the robe, the sense of self is quite prominent and the habits around it, connected with it, don't go so straight. So, you know, you still do all kinds of things to look good, you know. I mean, at a certain age, you just give up. It's very peaceful, you know. You don't care anymore. <laughs> so... You, sometimes we eat too much because we have been pushing in one direction. I should not eat. I mustn't eat. I must stop. I must stop. You know, I must. I should. I ought. I did. Da, da. So the the pushing the mind in one way 
you at the same time you push the other side, you know, that really wants to eat and wants to forget about being restrained and so on. But mindfulness, a beautiful thing I find with mindfulness, you're already, as soon as you're mindful, you've hit the Noble Eightfold Path. Do you understand? As soon as you're mindful, you're in the balance, you know, in the balance. You're not pulling one side and not pulling the other. That's the beauty of mindfulness. So when I'm, and also mindfulness brings you to the, to the emptiness of the mind. Do you understand? The mind is empty. At that, at that moment, you may be mindful of saying, I want this, I don't want that, I want this, I don't, but you are able to listen to your mind. And if you keep mindful, you know, if you really stay mindful, you notice as soon as you lose mindfulness and you've been like pushing your mind in one direction for too long, you just like stop it, you know, you just take exactly what you did not want to take. So, I don't have any solution for that. I won't say where it is, but um, you cannot stop that except being mindful. You can be mindful of what happens. You know, but one of the things that was one of the most helpful tips for me that really helped me enormously, which I'm nearly going to forget to share that with you, is someone, just one of the members of the teachers, member of the Sangha, when I was in Anagarika, mentioned to me, um, have you ever tried to feel your body, to go to the feeling in the body after you have eaten? And that, I have to say, transformed my, my kind of uh, perception of the food because I realized the when we go to the feeling in the body, we're much more attached almost to the, the comfort of the body than the comfort of the mind. You notice we can be nasty and miserable and awful mentally for days on end without any qualms whatsoever. But we like a comfortable body, don't we? We're quite attached to feel painless body, comfortable body. Isn't it true? So when you look at the feeling, the thing that transformed for me is like I look at my feeling and realize for a few hours after the meal, I began to really get be with the weight now of the body. And after that, my mind just did not want to be in that weight state for a few hours. So it actually uh, decreased the, my tendency to want to take more, decreased a lot by the fact that I was mindful of the weight in my body and particularly in the stomach, around the stomach there. And the mind can learn really quickly, because we are, you know, the fact that we are attached to comfort sometimes can help us to to uh, let go more quickly of certain things that makes us miserable. I hope that helped. Ah, Another one from our friend. Can you teach us how to reach the jhanas, or at least the first jhana, and how to recognize them? Well, you know, the jhana, for one thing, we're not allowed to talk about jhanas ourselves as our own experience. You know, you have to be careful, otherwise I'll be chucked out of the robe, you know. If um, if I don't have them, you know, I'll be chucked out of the robe. But I'm not, I'm more in, I'm more, my path is a path of vipassana wisdom. That's why I go. 
but you always need a bit of some concentration, you know. So jhana is described, I mean, there's like, you can experience the factors of jhana, but what Achen Samhita used to call the factors of jhana, like, um, you know, bitakavichara, you know, kind of uh, sort of holding and investigating, and then you have piti, joy, and then sukha, happiness, and then you have equanimity or ekagata, you know, just peace and equanimity. So you can see those factors in your mind, you know, if if you concentrate naturally, just a natural concentration, the mind comes down and you are maybe in conditions where there's no noise, nothing, no, distra- no distraction, no disturbances around you. The mind can, I'm not saying it does always, but can really calm down a lot. And you get into this kind of more peaceful, you know, and concentrated, the mind is concentrated, and you can feel the energy goes into, it's not jhana, but it goes into this sort of, uh, you know, you are aware of the breath, you know, and then the breath turns into this kind of um, uh, pity, it's like the energy of the body, very blissful, you know, and then sukha, it comes down, and then more mindfulness, ekagata, or the end, you know. So these are sometimes what describe the jhanas in the house of the jhanas are described in the suttas, and uh, the idea jhana is when you absorb into the object, you know. So, but I wouldn't go there unless you had some kind of um, advice, you know, because concentration is a kind of practice that the Buddha did. For many, for during his life and before he was a Buddha, you know, concentration was a practice that was very common in uh, in the Indian tradition. So even in a in a Christian tradition, people can like uh, centuries of Avila was supposed to have the jhana. She used to levitate, you know, when she wasn't a Buddhist particularly. She just had a con- very concentrated mind, right? So, and what was the other? Yeah. What is interesting about jhana, I remember when I was kind of uh, studying the subject, is that um, in Thailand, for example, they they don't really talk much about jhana, you know? They, they, the, the teachers will let you see naturally if your mind concentrates without becoming a big ego. You know, a lot of will and a lot of uh, they see how natural it is you know how you come naturally maybe to concentration some mind has a natural ability to concentrate others it's harder you know and so they tend to see I've noticed from my experience they tend to notice whether it's natural for you or you're more inclined towards vipassana or the wisdom aspect you know because it's well known that concentration is um not the path of liberation. It's a path of concentration, and it's helpful to be able to have a mind that kind of uh, knows the bliss, you know, of the brightness of concentration, or can sustain sustain concentration for a while, you know, because we need that for our vipassana practice too. Yeah? But the path of liberation is a return to actually seeing the phenomenon, you know, your mind and body, phenomena of your mind and body, and the arising and passing away, 
of mind and body. So the first jhana is like when you, uh, I mean, I, I'm talk, I don't know <laughs> how it's described in the book. <laughs> it's uh, the, the fact of, um, you know, vitakavichara, um, you know, examining and holding and keeping, keeping in mind and examining. And that takes a lot of concentration just to be with the breath and just to stay with the breath, you know, like that. that then your mind will calm down, you know. When you just factors of jhana, you know. That enough for now? Okay. What is it interesting is that uh, when you talk to teachers or you read the, the master of the forest tradition, or even nowadays, all these people, all the people who teach the jhanas around the around the world, you know, you have Ayakema was one of the first one, and Ajahn Brahm was another one, you know, Ajantanisaro can talk about that because he's also a jhana type, you know. I mean, he does vipassana, but he's very, if you don't have a jhana with Tanisaro, you don't have nothing. Same with Ajahn Brahm. Ajahn Sumedho didn't say much about jhana, you know. Yeah. It was right concentration was very important. Ajahn Chah didn't say much about jhana, but if somebody was inclined to his jhana, he was not stopping them, you know. I wasn't there, but he might even encourage to pursue jhana. Right? So there's nothing wrong one or the other. It's just different ability. Some people have practiced the jhana for many lifetimes. You know, they come to it quite naturally. So the last one is on. It's about jhana again. Somebody look on a chanting book in page 98, 99, teaching about first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. What's the first, the second, and third? Well, I've just said it. Is that enough? Well, the second jhana is con connected with the um, uh, the mind comes down and you, it's described like this, the, the, the feeling of pity. All right? The so joy. We, we got the, the feeling of pity in the factors of enlightenment, right? Remember that? Joy and and, and uh, serenity, right? Pity is uh, is it's a kind of an ecstatic, a bit of an ecstatic feeling of the energy. It can be different. It can be different things. People experience it in different things, but there's a kind of joy, you know. The third is like um the kind of it's called sukha. It means happiness. It's like from the joy after the mindfulness is there, then you have, it's described as, um, you know, you just, things calm down from, you know, ecstatic joy like this. You calm down and you just feel good and peaceful, you know, and happy. And then the last one is just um, more equanimity. It's like the mind is described as a fact, you know, the equanimity factor is present. So you're just peaceful and calm, and there is no kind of up and down. You know, it's not not you know uh, defined by high feeling or low feeling. You know, it's just equanimous. You can have a look at these um, description of the jhanas, but when you look at you know when you read the masters, you know uh, the teachers of meditation who have. Um, uh, done, you know, to cultivated the jhanas. It's interesting. None of them are really quite saying it in the same way. <laughs> Even some kind of battle and struggle in war between the jhana expert, you know, as the senses open or the senses close and so on. They might be saying the same thing. Yeah. 
but the way it's expressed, you know, some people then argue for them, you know, they may be saying the same thing in different words. But then people say, well, you know, should we have the senses closed? Or, you know, he said, we can have, we can still hear the cars in the street. And this one said, you can't hear anything, nothing. Everything has to be completely blocked. You can't hear a thing. So in the end, you just try to experiment yourself. So Buddhism, when it's an intimate physical relationship, you know, it's all about mindfulness, isn't it? What is Buddhism? It's not easy to see your wife or your partner as corpse, for example. You know, it's like investigation of the body and skeleton and all that. <laughs> In an intimate relationship, it would be a bit difficult, you know. So <laughs> Buddhism... We were looking at the four elements, you know, and sort of dissecting your partner into water, air, fire, and air. <laughs> you might lose what takes the intimacy, kind of, you know, the the edge. You suddenly, uh, I don't, I don't know. I never had Buddhism in an intimate physical relationship. <laughs> I had to leave my marriage to start on <laughs> Buddhism, <laughs> and. Um, I think you have to teach me how to do this. I don't know. Yeah, so those experts in Buddhism and intimate relationship, well, maybe you can share your experience. Anybody has this experience? <laughs> no? So tell us a little bit. Is she still with you? <laughs> we're, to we're talking about a successful intimate. <laughs> but you can still share what you want to share. It's fine. Yeah, it takes the edge, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's the thing. That's the Buddha. You know, knew that he had to, he had to kind of establish a monastic relationship, a monastic order. Otherwise, his teaching would probably never have come down the ages, twenty five hundred years later, because people would not be able to practice what he's teaching in an intimate relationship with husband, wife, and. Uh, kids and all the rest of it, you understand now. It's difficult, isn't it? Anybody finds it difficult to have an intimate relationship and Buddhism as your foundation of life? Maybe you're a bit shy to share all this, especially when you have that crisis of doubts as to whether you had to leave somebody to stop being normal. Buddhist. <laughs> so, finish with that one. Done this one. Yeah. This is an interesting one. It's one of the first notes, actually. Your handwriting is not so easy, but you mentioned an awakening moment that you had at Euston Station. It was Euston Street, by this way. <coughs> Something that came at an unexpected time, but after, uh, but after something working, to develop the kind of quiet mind that would allow insight to arise. You mention another moment, a winter retreat, when you had a kind of non. Non-insight about Ajahn Sumedho, 
What's that? It's interesting. An only insight about Hashem's media. I don't know what that means. And your own enlightenment. Oh, okay. Something that you were able to dismiss out of hand. Of hand, maybe. Where did, did each of these thoughts come from? Presumably not the same place. And have and how were you able to determine their authenticity? Was it within with your thinking mind? I just I just dropped them straight away, I put them in a cosmic bin. I didn't believe any of it personally. I just saw it as just any chalukanata. I just made the news that I'm enlightened. <laughs> yeah, sure. Do you know, it's like, who is speaking in there? It's like the Houston Road, you know, who is, doing, who is kind of interested in the design of car, you know, and commenting, commenting on it. It's the same thing. I didn't dismiss them, you know, in a kind of nasty way, just like, just thought coming up and mind is crazy, you know, it can't say anything. I don't know where it came from. I have no idea. Or the silent, you know, when I was doing the washing up and suddenly the time stood, stood still, you know, suddenly time stopped kind of thing. And I was kind of watching, I was watching it and I just said, that must be God, you know, cynically a bit, cynical, you know, the mind came back straight away. I bet that's God. That's how I responded to this moment of enlightenment. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't make anything. There was no authenticity for me. There was nothing authentic about it. I didn't proliferate on it. I just dismissed them just as one of those crazy thoughts you have. That's all. I didn't feel more enlightened or less enlightened. The enlightenment is actually you see that they are not yours. That's being enlightened to this uh, phenomena. You see clearly that these are just thought passing. And even if you were enlightened, who cares? Is there anybody enlightened anyway? Do you know what I mean? Even if I say I'm enlightened, it doesn't change anything that much, does it? People will probably think I'm mad. <laughs> That's one thing that could change. <laughs> And that chance we don't knew exactly what I was, uh, that what I had, this, what I, you know, he dismissed it just like me, you know. We just laughed, you know, when I said, you know, I had this on my Buddhist meditation path, I looked at you and I said, Ajahn Sumedho knows I'm enlightened. <laughs> Is there anybody in here? You know? It doesn't mean, to me, it, it, uh, it was. Is nothing much, you know, just a, just a crazy thought passing through the mind. Whether and if I'm enlightened truly, whether I say it or not, doesn't matter. There's nobody there who really is bothered. If an enlightened being, I, I think, doesn't bother it to tell it to tell him or herself, I'm enlightened. <laughs> so if he says so, he must be, you know, definitely some somebody else, <laughs> not the enlightened beings. Himself or herself. So I think we covered all the all the and all the question. 
Yeah, the retreat. We can do this tomorrow. So, do you have any other questions? I just want myself to say that I'm quite, um, I'm really happy the way you are practicing. Very impressed. At the interview, I find people are, I'm quite amazed that you have, um, you know, quite a lot of experience and practice and quite a lot of, uh, you know, maturity in your kind of attitude and approach to your practice. So I just wanted to say that before we get to another question, if there is any other question. I always thought that many of the spiritual teachings, you know, from different traditions were kept fairly, not secret, but they were not kind of popularized in the way Buddhism is popularized right now. You know, everybody's into Buddhism or mindfulness or something or vipassana. And in a way, it's... um, it's good at some level, like what did John Kabat-Zinn is, has been doing, bringing mindfulness and uh, awareness into hospitals and all kind of uh, situations, you know, schools and so on. On another hand, sometimes it has um, the danger is to dilute the teaching. Do you understand? Is to make the teaching teaching something which is just connected with finding well-being, which we all need desperately in a way in this world, finding a sense of um, pleasant, comfortable uh, sort of life that can make us happy. and uh, So there's a lot of that in the way um, we approach what, what we call Buddhism or kind of materialistic approach sometimes to the teachings, you know. That's what Chogam Trumpa, I don't know if you remember when you wrote Spiritual Materialism. Do anybody know Trumpa, the Tibetan teacher, Spiritual Materialism? No? Oh my God, really? You're really too young, is that true? <laughs> he was a great teacher, a great teacher called Trumpa from the Tibetan tradition who came to the West and England and then to America and started this um, big center in Colorado, in um, Boulder, Boulder, that's right, yeah? Boulder. And he wrote this book, so it's quite an interesting book, you know, but how we basically tend to um, follow the path, always a sense, what can I get out of it, you know? What can I get? What can I win? What can I, for me, all the time, you know, 
So if I get something, they must be good. If I don't get something, it must be bad. You know, this kind of tendency to to think of a past as what it get gives you, what what you get. Well, no, and not 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 just unpleasant things, but you get good things, pleasant things, things you like, things you want, things that you want. And we were rarely kind of uh, turn our attention to what actually what does it mean to be spiritually awake. You know. We tend to think I'm going to be in meditation and, you know, retreat and retreat after retreat after retreat so I can make my mind really, I can improve in my mind, you know. But you might not necessarily be on the right path, you know, that's a danger. Because the right path, the spiritual path, you know, it's actually going through the shadow side of life, you know. And how many people want to go through the shadow side of life is not pleasant. Yeah, it's not pleasant to see selfishness, is it? It's not pleasant to see self-centeredness or egoic mind. Yeah, so one can forget that. You know, you can just spend a lot of time complaining about your egoic, self-centered, selfish self. But um, you know, you complain about it. We complain about it. We think, oh, it should not be like this. It should be different. I'm terrible. I'm selfish. Da 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 da. But we don't often start doing the work that's needed to let it go. You know, we we want we because of this spiritual materialistic tendency, we will believe something or think trust something when we can see the result clearly. We don't know much how to walk in faith. You know, the faith mind. To shame, I have a beautiful poem on the face mind by a Chinese master called the, 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 the verses on the face mind, you know, and one of our monks used to read it as a Dhamma talk sometimes. And he says, The way is not difficult for those who have no preferences, but make one hairbreadth of preferences, and heaven and hers are infinitely apart. Do you understand? You lose your happiness, basically. <laughs> Does that make sense? Oh, I just love face because my mind hated face for a long, long time. Yeah. So now I just kind of brainwash it with face. <laughs> Well, we can call it sada in Pali, you know, sada. How about that? That really leaves you the mind blank, doesn't it? <laughs> I have sada. I know, you know, I mean, we, all of us have been through this, you know, like confidence, trust, and faith. Which one we're going to? So we're, we're still quite into the, in a way, it doesn't matter what we call it. We call it, we could call it blah, blah, blah. I have really lots of blah, blah, blah. It doesn't make any difference. Faith is something else. It's an experience, isn't it? So I think, you know, I used to be just like that, Rob, you know, that 
having confidence. Confident that looks good. You know, it's like something that's kind of everybody doesn't understand. It's intelligent confidence. You know, yeah, confident face is like, oh God, you know, what's that face? Blind, brainwashed, blind sort of believer, you know. That's face. That's why we don't like it. Trust is more heart, you know. It's like when you want to talk about face of heart, I trust this person. I've I've facing this person blind belief again. Back. Confidence, that's a bit strong, you know, you might have trust but not total confidence in somebody. Do you know what I mean? Okay. So, I mean, in a way, I, we can call it a little bit what we want, but I, I like the, uh, I'm much more, I tell you what, I mean, my, I, I've evolved in a way in that, in that respect. Because I think I've been, I have the transmission by, through Bhikkhu Bodhi's great, you know, impassioned discourse, I remember, at a conference where I was uh, participating in, uh, in, in, in America. And uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi lived in Sri Lanka, you know, for many years. He was like 30 years in Sri Lanka as a monk there. So he saw the Asian people, you know, practice Buddhism. And as you know, in Asia, a lot of practices for you know, lay people is about, you know, dana and, you know, a lot of confidence, you know, faith in offering, feeding the monks, which is amazing. The Westerners don't have this sense, you know. They love to have monks teaching, nuns teaching, you know, but they never think, how do they survive? <laughs> well, the Asian are very kind of down to earth, you know. Like in Thailand, people used to say, I was traveling sometime with a friend, a Thai friend, who was she was like quite intellectual. She was a university professor. She taught French actually at university. And I said to her, "Oh, you know, I hope it's not too much for you to look after me and so on." And she said, "Well, I want you to be a nun, and I'm here to help you." Do you know what I mean? That kind of mentality. They really have respect for monks and nuns in Buddhism because, in a way, I'm not talking about myself, by the way. But this tendency to think that we have to discard monks and nuns in society, when actually it is a sangha that has brought Buddhism to the for over twenty five hundred years, through what not people, but just through the real realization and the enlightened being that have come out of this learning and following the teachings. You understand, not just any ordinary being. But the people that have reached, reached stages beyond which they do not come back to the deluded state, like Sutapanna, you know, Sakayagami, Anagami, Arahant. These being are the ones that have kept the teaching alive through the ages. Do you understand? And the Asian people know that because they have lived in the Asian and Buddhist countries and have studied all the suttas and so on. And they know the Buddhist teaching very well, so much that they can forget to meditate because they think they know everything. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you know, there's a kind of conceit that they know, you know, a lot, which they do, they do, do know a lot. Even, well, the Thai are the same. I don't know about the Burmese so much, but... So, <clears throat> so when we... Um, 
when we look at the Buddhist teaching, it's very easy just to uh, see it as a kind of therapeutic path, right? And forget the dimension that it is truly, that is the path itself, it's a path of liberation. And not maybe everybody has the conditions to walk this path deeply. Do you understand? Because as you said, when you have a partner, it's not easy. When you have, I'm, told, I'm not blocking anybody, by the way, but if you have difficulties, don't be surprised because the path is very deep. It requires from people who walk the path to have a really strong determination to see through delusion, a strong, strong energy to actually sustain the practice without flinching. You know, so it's not a question of making people higher or lower or better or worse. It's not that, and it's not to discourage anybody here. But the 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 you know the teaching that the Buddha used a lot for the lay community. Meditation was one of them, like development, mental development. In fact, it's described as dana sila bhavana, generosity, ethic and mental development in the lay life, right? When um, So the, the renunciation in the lay life is not the, the primary generosity. You renounce through generosity. Do you understand? This is how you renounce because monks and nuns cannot renounce through that because there is no money you know, on our side. But the renunciation in the lay community is to be generous, not just in money, but also in many, many aspects. You know, that's your renunciation. Yeah, pass of renunciation. To be giving, to be kind, to be helpful, and so on. You know, developing the parameter, which are factors of the past as well. You know, they look, they, that's what the past needs. Also, this parameter of effort, ethical standard of um, um, equanimity and wisdom and determination and so on. All these factors are exactly what the training is about as well, you know, for us or for any monastics, you know. So it's not that different from what you have to do in your daily, in your lay life if you develop the parameters, yeah? It's not so different from training the mind. So we, we, the reason I think I speak about this tonight is because sometimes I feel that people have an, an idea of, of of the past of Buddhism in a very kind of, I would say, to me, it would be boring. I'm not saying that it is the case for you, but if I just saw it as meditation on my cushion, right? And a kind of, you know, I never wanted to be a Buddhist myself or even a nun because I felt I would be constantly, constantly feeling regretful and guilty because I'm not particularly a good girl type, you know. <laughs> so I'll be, you know, constantly kind of regretting and having terrible remorse about having beaten up somebody <laughs> or, or kind of told, swore at somebody's face or, you know, kicked something and broke it and it didn't belong to me. <laughs> I said, I can't do that, you know, to myself. I'll be in hell for the rest of my life if I become a nun. Well, I haven't been in hell, but I did have a lot of hellish moments. 
with respite. <laughs> but to see Buddhism in that way it can be not very joyful. You know, to see Buddhism as just like my practice, my meditation, my breath, you know, my anapanasati, my my peace of mind. You need to shake the mind a bit out of the status quo, you know. And what is Buddhism? Buddhism is really means living awake. And living awake, when you're really living awake, the mind begins to let go of its patterns, you know, of its habits, of its conditioning. Because when you live awake, it's like the mind, is, it's like mindful. Awake is a quality of mindfulness, you know. But again, that's not so easy either, because I remember when I was developing mindfulness, you know, you can, you can easily get quite tense developing mindfulness. Have you noticed? Got to be mindful, it's like... <laughs> you know, my, I remember when now in the early years, you know, we all struggled, you know, to get the balance. You know what I mean? So like you get mindful and suddenly... I've seen people, even, they're still around, you know, where you're mindful and you like, you walk like... <laughs> and you just have a feeling you're kind of surrounded by a bunch of zombies. <laughs> it's not fun, you know, really. And I'm not talking about anybody here, please, you know, don't get me. <laughs> I haven't looked at you, I don't know what you do, and I have no idea. So don't don't take anything personally, please, because yeah, I'm just from memory. <laughs> So when you practice mindfulness on your own, you might suddenly feel, you know, the sense of, gosh, I was really happy before I meditated, and now <laughs> everything was going wrong, you know, it's like my head bursting with concentration. <laughs> and then you remember the Buddha saying, it's all dukkha. Dukkha. <laughs> Vulnerable truth of suffering. <laughs> Bad enough to have your mind kind of trying to get around this kind of meditation practice. But you also have this, it's not like it's going to be wonderful and heavenly, and you see sort of, you know, heavenly opening up to you and bright light and God's coming down and all the rest of it. Nothing. It's like Dukkha, of course, <laughs> with the nose kind of on Dukkha, you know. That's why the Buddha never told the vulnerable truth to the lay people, because they had enough problems. <laughs> you know, it's very rare. He talks the vulnerable. I think he started talking to King Pasanadi, or just on his deathbed, you know. Oh, by the way, <laughs> I have to find the sutta for you, because <laughs> he never, I don't think he did. He said King Pasanadi wasn't ready for the vulnerable truth until I think he was breathing his last, you know. <laughs> <clears throat> so, <laughs> any questions? <laughs> That's one of the reasons why the Buddha haven't spoken about that today or even the day before. But the the third refuge, the Sangha, is such an important part of our life. 
because the Sangha represent the enlightened beings throughout the ages, you know, from Sotapanna to Arahant. Traditionally, now, when you go to America, everybody is Sangha, you know, lay, except that means group. Actually, Sangha means just community group in Pali. So the Sangha is so important because these are the friends who remind you of the past, for one thing. They can help you and support you on the path when you have difficulties. You can go and talk to them. Um, you know, they are just your sisters and brothers in, in the Dhamma, you know, friends in Dhamma. Of course, sometimes Sangha can turn into a family dynamic, you know, and you just hate all of them. Buddhist groups, you know, you go to Buddhist groups, sometimes they've had battles, you know, <laughs> been talking about metta and peace and so on, and they're all quarrying about one thing or another. It's like peace, the peace, you know, the peace, um, people working for the peace in the world, you know, they're all kind of arguing, apparently. They were the most unpeaceful people, whether one that there was an organization, World Peace, or anyway, quite famous 20 years ago. And we were always talking about them. People in this kind of group used to kind of having a lot unpeaceful mind. You know. So it's good to walk the talk in a way, you know, to actually, if you want to find peace, just be a peaceful person. And if you want to convert people to peace, just don't do that. Because <laughs> you'll be in trouble. Because the slightest movement of anger in you, they'll say, See, you don't get it. Even though you may, have, you may have been at peace for weeks, you know, but somebody reminds you, remembers that you said, just may be peaceful, you know. And then you start quarreling with somebody because they don't see you as they remembered you, as somebody who was a peaceful person, and then they see you having an argument with somebody. So, um, you know, I don't need to say much more. We're getting late a bit. But try to see your, you know, your 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 path of practice. You know, the most one of the most important thing is actually to be really ethical. Do you understand? Because the ethical aspect of your life is actually, you see, your mind as it manifests through your actions by body and speech. You know, it's the mind itself. That's why we have to be very careful and very mindful of our action and our speech because this is still the mind manifesting. You can see it really much more clearly than just meditating on a cushion sometimes. Yet most people, you know, sometimes ago would have liked to dismiss ethic, you know. In America, they're very good. Just Can I have just four precepts out of eight, you know? <laughs> or three out of five, you know? <laughs> Can I keep drugs and sex, please? <laughs> you know. And without qualms, you know, it's like just confident coming to you. Is it possible to just have, you know, three? Can I take three precepts? <laughs> Not like the British people will be slightly embarrassed and ashamed of just being so kind of sloppy. Now, you know, I know the teaching in America is quite interesting at that level. You know, people are very confident about just getting their own boundaries, you know. 
it's good to feel really in your life and your practice to remember to find what makes you happy and cultivate it, you know, as long as it is ethical, of course, because if it's not ethical, the result will be you will re regret it. You have a mind that keeps regretting your things, you know, when you're not ethical. And it takes attention to really work with precepts. It takes a lot of attention. It's already a deep meditation without having to do, you know, finding a mat and a cushion and a zafu and a place and a room and a retreat center and so on. You can do your meditation all day long by observing how you act and how you speak and how you, you, you know, how you interact with people. This is your mind. It's not nobody else's mind. It's your mind. It's a mind. If you're just dismissive with somebody, you know, you want to practice metta, but are you? Have you got that? You know, speech, body deportment, and interaction, which are friendly with people. Do you? Or are you just kind of hating everybody around you, or half of them at least, treating them like cattle, you know, as if they didn't exist. Well, very good. The mind has a lot of aversion like that, you know. So you can see your aversion to people like that. You don't need to go and watch the aversion in the mind even. You can see, you can begin to pick up in your deportment, in your behavior, in your relationship with people, in your relating to people and so on. You can begin to see where your mind is at. And it's not to judge it. It's not to make a statement, a negative, a critical statement on it. It's not for that. It's just to realize, okay, now there is anger in me, or there is aversion, or I'm just dismissive, I'm cold, I'm cool-hearted. How many times are we cold-hearted and we don't even see it? Isn't it true? A bit of warmth, you know. Think of a warm heart. What is a warm heart? I can see your face just smile, just saying warm heart. Isn't it sweet? Look at how sensitive we are. Just be nasty. <laughs> Doesn't work so well. You just kind of giggle with thinking it's kind of ridiculous, you know. <laughs> it's like, but a warm heart. It's just simple tips like this, you know. Is my heart warm or is it friendly? right now you can have so much fun with your mind and body like that you know for actions and speech you learn a huge amount if you really want to learn there's no end to learning you know no end to it mistakes are perfect learning process you know you don't have to be right all the time you don't have to be constantly contra contracted and concentrated into, oh my God, you know, what is she going to say? What am I going to say? What are, you know, am I getting it right or not? Or, you don't have to be in that kind of stressful mood, you know. That's why the Sangha is important, because you're sharing with this Sangha values that the world do not share. The, you know, you're in a world where you have to be the best and you have to be the most successful. You have to have lots of money. You have to be blah, 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 all that sort of thing. The world will push you in that direction again and again doesn't it? I mean, there are very good things happening in the world also. I don't want to make the world like a, a bad thing, you know, but the value, the worldly, what they call the worldly wind. Have you heard about the worldly winds? 
who doesn't know the world he wins? No? Well, it's like, um, you know, the desire for sensory pleasure and then anger and then, uh, six, uh, sorry, sensory pleasure and anger or, or let's say, um, pleasure and anger. Then you have uh, success and failure. Then you have to praise and blame. And you have to, what is it? I see that's a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. That's a two more. And uh, being um, respected and being, what is the word for you? Louder. Yeah, praise and blame, we said it. A gain and loss, that's right. That's right. So gain and loss, that's worldly wins. Who did not know the worldly wins? Okay. So they're very important in the teaching of the Buddha to be aware of these forces, pleasure, I mean sort of, Anger and the opposite of anger, and then you have success and failure, the fear of failure and the desire for success, the fear of blame, the desire for praise, the fear of loss, the desire for gain. You can see, uh, reflect yourself now in your daily life. It's called the whirly winds, yes. Uh, I don't know, but do you imagine them as kind of passing through the mind, you know, just kind of blowing through the mind? In Pali, she's a kema kez nous Pali. Doesn't it win in Pali? The word, eh? What is in Pali? It's white. Atta, something? Don't worry, it's fine. So it blows through our mind constantly. It's not ours, it's not mine, it's not yours, you know. Ataloka Dhamma. Yeah, so it's a, a Dhamma, Loka means world, yeah, and Dhamma thing. Eight worldly thing, yeah. But sometimes it's referred to the word worldly winds. And so um, this is what is the most, the most kind of common conditioning in our mind. Everything is around this, this worldly dhamma, these worldly um, conditions, right? We fear not succeeding, and then we get stress, and we want to get to success to to succeed, and we get stressed by you know. So it's a lot of stress comes from that. We want to want to be loved. We don't want to be hated. You know, we want to be um, sort of respected. We don't want to be disrespected or blame or you know. We want to be praised. So from very little child, we start with this worldly wind. You know, as a little child, the condition is already there being praised and blamed, you know. Isn't it true? We start very early with this conditioning. So the, the, the thing is not too much to um, you know, make a problem about them. You just know that you can be very much um, motivated or uh, kind of uh, influenced. You're under the influence of this worldly dharma. 
And that you can see it even in monastery. I mean, it's just a, a mind, you know, a human mind conditioning. It's not monastic or not. Or... So this is something to observe because they have a way of stressing the mind profoundly, you know. Yeah, bringing a lot of pain and uh, misery. So, any questions? No? You're probably just ready to flop into the lion's posture. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> that would be nice to flop into the lion's posture. <laughs> so, what we can do, maybe we finish. You know, you're very patient. We finish and do the. Uh, <clears throat> we just want to do the chanting. Maybe. Are you ready for another chant? <laughs> Everybody, what is she saying? No, we won't do anything new tonight. We're just going to finish the uh, closing homage. You know. <laughs> <laughs>